Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, hello, Brandon Harvey here with this week's episode of Sounds Good. Sounds Good is the podcast where every single Monday, I sit down with an inspiring person and talk about happiness, overcoming struggles, and living a life of intentionality and wonder. This week, I'm so excited to have Jason Russell on the show. Jason is the co-founder of Invisible Children, an organization that you've probably heard of that was founded to increase awareness of the horrendous activities of the LRA in Central Africa. Jason was also the director of the iconic Coney 2012 film that took the world by storm. If you remember Coney 2012, you might also remember the public breakdown that Jason experienced as a result of the tremendous stress he was under. I've admired Jason for a long time, and I loved getting to have this conversation with him. In fact, our conversation just kept on going. So we're splitting the show up into two parts. You'll get the first part this week, and the second part you'll get, well, next week. I'm so excited for you to hear it, so let's just jump straight into the conversation. All right, I am in beautiful, sunny San Diego, California with Jason Russell. Jason, welcome to Sounds Good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. This is seriously so fun. I've admired you for a long time. Um, and when I found out I was coming to San Diego, I was like, I gotta, I gotta call Jason. Yeah, well, I've happen. been listening to your show and I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's so good. I want to be on it. And then you emailed me and I was like, yes. Good. I'm exactly. so glad because I've wanted to have you for forever. And uh, Jedediah Jenkins, a good friend of yours, third best friend. I like that. Who's, what's first and second? So my first best friend is like my brother. Okay. He actually was my best friend in high school and he married my sister. What? Yeah. And then um, John Chu, I went to film school with. He's a director in LA. We've been best friends since college. Amazing. And then Jed's third. So there's no pressure <laughs> to be third, you know? And people think it's junior high to label them, but I'm like totally fine with that. Because then yeah. you know where you stand. Oh, totally. You know, like you have to buy them a gift. Like, yeah. You, they're in your wedding. <laughs> And like my wife is zero, like she's my wife. I, you know, totally. Right? Yeah, of course she's my best friend, but it's zero. It's like, you're not even counted because you're, you sleep with me, you know? <laughs> yeah, but, but anyway, yeah, sorry. Jed, no, I love it. Um, Jed is your third best friend and he was on the podcast early on. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of insider baseball here. Jed is our most popular episode ever. So everybody loves Jed and you know, he's your third best friend. So everybody's going to love you. Well, I don't know, but I, I'm not surprised because Jed is such an amazing orator and conversationalist that like when you, I know everyone has friends like this, you might not see him for six months or a year or whatever, but you pick up 
in the novel that your conversation has been writing for years. Yes. So like when we sit around the fire and when we talk, it's like, whoa, we're on page 4,299. Like, totally. and there's nothing like having a friend like that. And that's who Jed is. You can bounce any idea and play with it. And it's been a blessing. And he's just so fun too. Like, oh yeah. You know, most yeah. people don't think of Jed. Like he'll, you'll get in the car and you'll be like, did you hear the new Rihanna song? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's that guy too. Oh. So it's so fun. It's so amazing. Doing life with him. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Okay. So I've, I, I told you this over email the other day, but I feel like I've been following you, your life, invisible children for forever. Hmm. You know, I, I think that I had invisible children on my top eight on MySpace. Um, when I bought a Mac in early high school, it came with a free printer. That printer came with a free set of, uh, photo paper and I used all the glossy photo paper to print invisible children posters, which wow. is like, and they looked good. You know, right. I put them this all, is for your bedroom. This is from some of them were in my oh, bedroom, but they were, they were for, um, Avengers. they went to my high school oh, or I, I put right. them in my high school to be like, here's the thing that's happening. So it's like just this dorky thing where I feel like invisible children has been a part of the way that I have seen the world for a long time. And as, as the person who, is kind of at the center of that. It's, you know, you've been a person in my life for a long time, unknowingly. So mm, that's it's so cool to hear. It's, it's, so it's cool to kind of get to have this conversation, but I wanted to kind of bring it back a little bit because I knew you at like, or I didn't know you, but I knew of you in early, your early twenties. Mm-hmm. And so I want to kind of reverse and be like, okay, what was, who is the Jason who turned into the Jason that mm-hmm. I know? And lots of people, um, were impacted by. And so like, what was middle school, high school like for you? Yeah. Um, middle school was horrible, uh, because I went to homeschool. So I'm a very social creature. Woo is like my number third uh, strength. So I grew up in theater. My parents started the largest children's theater organization in the nation. So Um, does that mean sing dance act all three that's it sing dance act it's called cyt christian youth theater and my dad's vision was like hey if we teach young kids the art of theater and storytelling um that's really what shapes culture and so he had this vision like if we can teach a lot of young people what a good story is a positive story with redemption then maybe the world could change a bit and Mm. so i had that belief too as a young age being his son And like my first 10,000 hours was with theater, with theater arts. By the time I was probably 12, you know, in junior high, I loved performing, dancing, singing. um, But what I found most fulfilling was directing. Oh. And so at a very young age, junior high, I wanted to tell a story to millions of people all at the same time. And I knew if I stayed with theater, which is like my first love, that that would take decades to get to millions of people. And so I realized filmmaking was the way to do that. Yeah. Like you can tell a story, you know, one weekend avatar, boom, millions of people can hear your story. And yeah. I thought that would be so cool. And so that's why I went to film school or wanted to go to film school um, since I was like in eighth grade. That's amazing. Yeah. And then, okay. So middle school sucked. Eighth grade, you knew that you wanted to yeah. go to film school. What about uh, the gap between film school and eighth grade? Yeah. Between film school. So, in eighth grade, so my junior high wasn't that painful, except you didn't know anyone. So totally. I, was, I had my last friendships were in sixth grade, and then I'm going into high school, ninth grade, without 
having anywhere to sit at lunch. Gotcha. I think that's what was like traumatizing is like, where do I sit? And then the first week back, I only knew Danica, who was my best friend, who is mm. now my wife. I sat with her and her nine girlfriends at lunch Whoa. and the dudes across the way didn't like that. They were like, who's this new guy? Why is he sitting with all the hot girls or whatever? And so they took it upon themselves to start like throwing food at me, like bullying, like bullying me in a way. Oh. And it was just super awkward because I'm like, I have no one to back me up. Yeah. Like, where do I sit now? Like, those are the cool guys and like, they're throwing food at me. You know, so it was like this slow, yeah. like backward crawl into, you know, sadness and depression. Like I, I spent years going to school and I'm sure there are people listening who felt this or you literally don't have a friend mm. or at least you feel like you don't, you have acquaintances, but deep down you're like, I have no one to eat lunch with. Yeah. You don't feel known. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that I went through that phase to gain empathy for what it's like to feel alone at a, at a big place. You know, and I mm. totally felt, um, Unlike all the other guys, I was like in theater, I was dancing. There was like, I didn't do sports. So I felt like an outlier in, in a weird way. Yeah. And then I'd go off to like my theater friends and kind of do that. But high school is pretty painful. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. And so you're kind of in the midst of this depression and that, and that taught you empathy, as you yeah. just said, what was the process of coming out of that? Do, did you stay in that depression for a long time? Yeah, it really was me like seriously praying for a friend. Mm. My freshman, then sophomore, then junior, I was like going to give up. But my senior year, this guy named Ryan Hansen showed up. He was a freshman. He was really fun, really funny. He played football and he was a cheerleader. Whoa. Yeah. So he was like everything. And he was just dynamic and like charismatic and so fun to be around. So we hung out all of my senior That's year. That's awesome. His freshman year. And then eventually he married my younger sister. So now we're brothers. I got gotcha. So like it was a long time of like a drought, no friendship. And then, you know, it was like, well, here's your best friend who's going to be your brother. That's amazing. And it's this real genuine friendship and it was what you needed. And totally. That's cool. Yeah. That's he, really cool. Like he's, he's such a brother to me in so many ways. That's, and we're doing life together and family together. And that's cool. Mm-hmm. And so you think it was this other person that kind of almost pulled you out of that in some ways? Like, did it, did it feel like you were pulling out of depression or was it just kind of one of those things where you kind of like look back and you're like, Oh, I don't feel this weight anymore. Well, this is going to sound a little bit extreme, but there was like a week at high school where for whatever reason I could see other people's pain almost like visibly. It was very strange. Like it was like, I guess a deep, deep empathy, but I looked around at everyone, like the nerds, the jocks, the you know, popular kids, the scientists, whatever. And I was like, you're in pain. Oh my, like I saw people's pain mm. at every level. And it felt strange, but then I felt like, oh, I'm not alone. And I think that's really where pain grabs a hold of the mind. Yeah. It's like, you're alone in this. Like mm. you actually have no one to relate to where it's totally the opposite. Everyone's walking around with pain. And if you really stop and say, where does it hurt right now? They, they could tell you if they're honest, everyone's right, you know? And so, you know, like our friend Ruthie, like Mm -hmm. her joy comes from her deep pain. Absolutely. You know? And so like they go and they go together, whether we like it or not. Yeah. They're two ends of the same stick. Like you have to, and the, and the deeper your pain, the more capacity you have to experience joy. That's correct. And, and that's something that I kind of keep on thinking about is like, 
can I, and I think I maybe even asked Ruthie this, like, can I create or experience more heartbreak so that I have the capacity to experience more joy? And I don't know if that's something you'd want to wish upon yourself or anybody, but it's like, how can I, I don't know. It's weird. I think there's a genuine way to do that. And I think that's a huge motivation for me to go towards um, injustice Mm. because I was raised with such privilege. Like my life was so like blessing filled, like at every level. I mean, my biggest pain was that I got a little bit bullied in high school. Like when I really look at that at the universal level, it's (laughs) not that big of a deal. You know, it is because it hurts, but you know, because I was so privileged growing up, I was like, how do I go towards the suffering in the world? Absolutely. Because it really, I felt like I could take more of it on. Yeah. In terms of like hearing these stories of atrocities or genocide, I was like, whoa, these are people's lives. And some of the greatest joy I've ever experienced is in that suffering that they're living out in that war zone, you know? Beautiful. And I I would imagine we'll get to that in a minute. So right after this, you went to, you went to film school. Yeah. Yeah. So I tried because I wanted to go to USC because I'm like a super achiever. I want to do the best, be the best at everything I do, you know? Um, And so I wanted to go to USC because it's the best film school in the world. And it is. (laughs) They wouldn't um, accept me. Oh, wow. At USC. So I went to a junior college, felt like a loser, was embarrassed for a couple of years, mm. applied again, got denied again, applied again, got denied again. So then I got a meeting with the dean because I wasn't going away. And mm. I said, I will go here. I don't care how long it takes. He said, I'll get you into the school, USC. You have to get into the film school. I can't do that because it's harder to get in than Harvard Law. Right? Yeah. So I went to USC for a semester and I went to the um, admit, admittance, like the women who look at your, oh, yeah. your application. And I made friends with them. And I hope that that's what like steered it. Cause they only accepted five transfer students and one of them didn't want to come there. And so they called wow. me and they said, you're the backup to the five. Do you want it? That's great. And I was like, this was the dream since eighth grade. And now I think I was 20 at the time. And I'm like, yeah, I'm in. Wow. It was like one of the best days of my life. Like, cause you know, when you're young like that, you think, okay, once I get into my dream college, I'm done. Yeah. You think it's, you think it's just stepping stones and it's like, yeah, you're like, you okay, I, my dream's rest. done. Like I got yeah. into the college, I got into film school, I'm done. It's know? so short sighted, but it's so real. It's true. And that's why, you know, um, quarter life crisis is so real. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's something people don't talk about enough, but it's like, there's so much depression around 20, yeah. 24, 25. Cause you have all these ideals. And then after 17 years of schooling, you have to be successful and you're like, I'm working at Starbucks. Totally. You know? And so you feel like shame for not achieving. Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention in just the way that jobs work now, it's like, you can't just graduate and expect, especially like in the film world, you yeah. can't just graduate and be like, well, I'm going to be a successful filmmaker. Like totally. you have to be creating good work. You have to have the right people see your stuff. Like yeah. there's all this, uh, all these other factors. It's not a guarantee anymore. Yeah. And I, right after USC's film school, it was, really successful. I had a short film. I made lots of friends. Um, we were creating a movie and I went back home to live with my parents because I had so much debt and I worked mm. at a, a sandwich shop making, you know, ju- juices and sandwiches for like, you know, tips and feeling really depressed. Yeah. Like, I, I put a post-it on the cash register and I said, follow your passion. The money will follow you. Mm. Like someone told my aunt told me that and I was like, that's so cool. Like, I hope that's true. <laughs> yeah. You know, because like, if, you, if you worry about the money first, you often mm-hmm. get paralyzed. Yeah. And like, I'm talking about today, like even right now, totally. if I'm like super hyper scared about the money, little gets done. But if I'm like, this is what I want to do more than anything. Yeah. You know, others usually 
follow that. You totally. Know? Yeah. And, and you'll get too burnt out if you, if you are just following the money, you know, you can do that for a short little stint. Yeah. But it's, and you get in like a rut and yeah. you're like, I'm paycheck, paycheck, paycheck. But, um, if you want to do it more than anything and passion's thrown around so lightly, it's almost bankrupt. But like the core definition is like, I would die to do this. Mm. Like I'm going to die trying to do this. Totally. Like that's what passion yeah. means to me. It's not like I have an interest in, you know, making bed sheets. Maybe you do, but yeah. Um, you have to be willing to like lay it all on the line for it. Totally. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned earlier that you started to kind of go to these places where you could experience empathy in a deeper way. Right. And what was the first experience of that? Like what was the first trip? What was the first intentional right. step towards that? So I mentioned to a buddy in college, um, that I wanted to do a trip abroad and he's like, where? And I just said Africa. Cause I had been interested in a, in a long time because of a guy named Dan Eldon, hmm. um, this journalist who w- was killed at 22 years old in Somalia and his mom and sister, Kathy and Amy published his journals. And I read through the journals and they're like the most visually stimulating, exciting thing that I had wow. ever seen. Like an adventurous life. Like, you know, in a Land Rover with his friends, like doing these, he was the original hipster. Like if you Google Hmm. Dan Eldon, he was it. Like he was so cool. And I thought you can live like that. Like, what do you mean? He had a camera and he was just like going around Africa telling these amazing stories. And so it was because of his life and death that brought me like this inspiration, the spark to want to go. So the next time I saw my friend, Joey, he was like, I, I got us uh, tickets to Africa. We're going with this missions organization. Whoa. And we were both raised Christians. So we're like, okay, that's great. Whatever. Well, it was horrible. No. It was horrible. What made it horrible? Evangelical Christianity. It was yeah. like so <laughs> horrible. Like getting off the bus and like doing these like plays, these 30 minute plays in Swahili and you're dancing around in costume like telling them about Jesus. And like, for the most part, they're looking at you like, we know who Jesus is. Like we actually just need clean water. Yeah. Or like we need HIV AIDS medicine. Like we need ARVs. <sighs> and so there was this massive disconnect between like my faith and what I thought we were doing to what like the true need was. And so I fell in love with like Kenya and the culture and the people. And I'm like, I'm coming back here, but I am not coming with any organization yeah forget the church like forget this agenda for like i wanted to be totally pure and so i promised myself on the plane back that no matter what happened i would come back here right after film school with a camera brilliant but there was a choice to make because my friend john chu and i loved musicals and dancing and Mm. like all these great things wait do i recognize that name John Chu, his first movie we made together was Step Up to the Streets. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I know his and name. And he made Step Up 3D, and he's made G.I. Joe. He made the Justin Bieber documentaries. Oh, one of them. no, that's, that's how I know. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the Justin Bieber documentaries. He's amazing. Saw them all in theater. Yeah, a lot of the first Bieber documentary influenced Coney 2012. Really? Yeah. I actually totally see, see that. that? Because 100%. of the social media element. So we, mm. my best friend and I, or John Chu and I were like sharing ideas okay. at the time. That's so funny. I yeah, have no so idea. We were in Spielberg's film class, which means you study all of Spielberg's films and then he comes to your class and sure. you get to ask him any questions. Nuts. Yeah. Wow. And so I'm like, Mr. Spielberg, like, you know, 
I love all your movies. You're so amazing. Um, what are you going to do next? Cause he did like Jurassic park and Schindler's list the same year. Yeah. Like this is a storyteller to study, yeah. you know? And he's like, I want to make a musical. And I was like, well, that's what I want to do. Uh, when do we go to lunch? You know? And like 300 people <laughs> in the class are laughing. And then I told John, I, I want, I would do anything to be on a Spielberg set. Hmm. And six months from that class, John Chu and I made a short film, 20 minutes, and it landed on Spielberg's desk. Chu had a meeting with them, him on Monday, and that Friday, Danica, Chu, and I went to DreamWorks and pitched a movie that we had made up in like five days. No way. (laughs) No. And we pitched it to all the DreamWorks executives. So it was like 10 people in a room, and we're 22 (laughs) years old, dancing around, having wigs, and like... All the, we wrote songs. Like, it was insane. That's incredible. Right? But they didn't know that two weeks later, I'm going back to Africa with Bobby and Laren, the only yeah. two people who said yes, because no one wants to go to a genocide in Sudan. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> At the time. So that's what happened is I was actually in Sudan when I found out that DreamWorks and Spielberg bought the musical that they wanted wow. to make. So I had that choice to make. Like, my dream was to bring back the Hollywood musical that's what I was actually trained and good at or go to this documentary and see what happens. Um, mm. and so I chose, you know, the documentary cause I felt called to the stories, yeah. the friends I'd made, you know, it, was it a, was it the step towards depth? You think, I think honestly it was, I don't want this to sound trite, but it was the, desire to have an adventure. Mm. Like I really was like, Dan Eldon lived like that guy lived. And there's something I don't, I'm trying to say this where it doesn't sound cliche, but like those who have been there know, like when you are out there and you are just in a sense, like off the grid, there is such a freedom you cannot get Mm -hmm. that I've never found in the West. And it's this like simplicity, this purity. But like I said, it's like these children were and sometimes are running for their lives. Mm -hmm. And so when you meet people in that circumstance, their level of appreciation for life is so extreme. And, and every breath is a blessing that you're like, how can I not be drawn to that? Um, As much as I love Hollywood movies, like this felt more experiential and, an epic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wait, and tell me more about that first trip. Like what was, yeah. what was it like when you, when you arrived? Well, I want to say it was really hard because we didn't know what we were doing. Laren, Bobby and I were clueless. We tried as much as we could to do research. The internet wasn't as informative <laughs> as it was back in 2003. Um, but we were, we look back on it now, all, all three of us with deep nostalgia, even though it was really hard and we were fighting a lot and we were trying staying up so late. And when we met the children in Northern Uganda, it was an immediate connection. It was an immediate thing that we couldn't forget. Couldn't mm-hmm. let go of. Jacob was the very first child we ever talked to. We have it on camera. Um, so it, it felt very kind of, uh, you know, they, they talk about like being in the flow mm-hmm. when like you're in the flow. And when we had committed to these children that we wanted to tell this story, we knew we were, we were going to do it. 
everything kind of fell into place. Like it was like, we were, it was how we were supposed to, we built a crane for like a hundred bucks and we like attached the camera and would go in at night and get these epic shots to show how horrible these children were living. Um, but again, we, we literally, I had to call my mom one point and be like, we are literally out of money. We have $5. Like, can you send us a couple hundred dollars so we can eat? Like it was, we were living in a place that had no bathroom or running water. So we were like cutting off like water bottles and urinating in them. Like this is how we were living. Yeah. It's super low budget, but, um, we returned with enough footage to make a short movie and invisible children was the name of it. Tried to get it into festivals. There's no YouTube or Vimeo at the time. And no one really wanted it. They didn't know what to do with it. Cause yeah. it was like part like jackass MTV meets like national geographic, you know, like was there's just, no precedent for it. Yeah. Like vice <laughs> wasn't around, to, like, it, you know? <laughs> so we just decided to show it to as many people as possible um, yeah. outside of the mainstream. And I think that that decision, although it wasn't like intentional, it was what built the movement. Mm. because we were showing up to meet college students or to churches or to whoever would have us face to face. But can you help us? Yeah. Like we're nobodies, but can you help us? Um, and it was more so like, can you help us help people? Totally. And I think that I really want to emphasize that because like the white man's burden and the white savior and all that, like I totally, I get it. I've, but I, I can tell you that everyone we met, and these are people in internally displaced camps. A thousand people were dying a week. The UN in 2004 called it the most forgotten and neglected humanitarian crisis in the world. Mm. Jan Eglin, the guy, said that. So everyone we met literally looked into our cameras and said, please tell America. Please tell your president. Please get someone to help us. It felt like you were witnessing a slow bleeding genocide. And you're looking into these eyes and they're saying, please, please, please. Like we are dying. And it's as if you're the only people that know it's as if it's a secret. And you're like, I have to tell someone. There were no journalists there. It was too dangerous. There was no, like we met one woman, I think from the BBC, but like it was just, no one was reporting on it, you know? And because it wasn't, I don't know, sexy enough or it wasn't interesting enough. So we felt really obligated to do it. And we wanted to do it right. And we wanted the movie to speak to a generation that wouldn't necessarily care. Mm. And so we were like, how do we get them to care? Yeah. And so you start sharing it around and you guys start to kind of blow up. Invisible children blows up. People start to become aware of this injustice. Um, I guess it's not just anybody, though. It was specifically like our generation. It's millennials. It's it's this young up and coming group of people hanging out on MySpace, Right. And what did that movement feel like in the middle of it? So Laren was 19 when we left and he turned 20 on the trip. And so the whole intention was to get someone like him who actually didn't care, wasn't an activist, had never been outside San Diego, Mm. you know, really. So we're like, how do we get that kid in high school? How do we make it cool to care? Yeah. Like, how do we get the Laren pool to be like, Hey guys, this is important, but not manufacture a movement, but to really, we studied, um, the weather underground, which is this group of really intense radicals during the you know sixties. Yeah. Um, who their motto was to bring the war home. Like people don't understand how bad Vietnam is. 
So they started to do extreme things in America and became like in, internal terrorists um, in terms of like they would blow up federal buildings and like do really gnarly things to make sure that people knew what war looked like in Vietnam. So we didn't want to blow anything up, but <laughs> we were like, how do we bring the war home? Like yeah. what a great idea. And so how we creatively like would manifest that is by doing things that the children and the women and the families had to live through. So night commuting was our first event and we yeah. had thousands of people night commuting around the world to mimic one night what they had been doing for years and years. And to break that down a little bit, actually, maybe this is a good time to pause yeah. and explain a little bit further for those who don't know what exactly was happening. And so you've got people night commuting. They're going somewhere to stay safe at night. Where What are they trying to be safe from? Right. So this is a very complicated, long history, right? There's so many layers and elements and political um, nuances to this conflict. So as I explain it, I want you to know I'm trying to explain it as simply and as quickly as possible mm-hmm. to all you academics, if you're listening. <laughs> so um, Uganda was colonized when they were given like liberty and actually given their country back. This happens in a lot of African countries. Whoever has the most power takes control. Power meaning guns. So it was literally like one dictator from the next rebel leader. The current president, Museveni, came to power through the gun. He was a rebel like Kony, committed atrocities, and is now president, has been president for 30 years. Other rebel groups have tried to gain power and overthrow him. One of those rebel groups is from a guy named Joseph Kony, who overtook a movement that this woman named Alice Lequena had. It was a very spiritual movement. She had 10,000 people marching towards like the capital to overthrow it. Joseph Kony came to power in his 20s, and people got tired of the conflict and decided to not participate in the violence. Well, he and his top commanders were like, that's not okay. So we're not going to go after Museveni necessarily, we're going to abduct our own people, the Acholi people. Mm. And the easiest to abduct are children because you can brainwash them, give them guns, and through fear, um, teach them how to terrorize. So it was like a fratricide in a way. Like Kony's killing his own people. And there are theories and or notions that Museveni didn't stop that because the Acholi were opposite um, tribes from the president, um, who was Bugandan. And so because the president's not stopping the violence and he's putting people in displacement camps, which were supposed to be a few months, and then they lasted years and years and years and years, and no one's bringing aid to these displacement camps, people are dying 1,000 a week, which is more than even the LRA violence. So we're talking millions of people. Like I think at the height in northern Uganda, it's 1.8 million people are living in camps. Wow. Like it's not wow. okay. And, you know, you see the U.S. aid come in and they're just grabbing the beans. They're grabbing the oil. They're like literally starving, you know. And we show up 17 years after this conflict has been going on. And, and uh, the LRA blew up a car in front of us. That night we saw the children sleeping. And as Westerners do, we were like, what is going on? Yeah, you're being confronted with this reality. Yeah. And we're like, who is stopping it? What do you mean children are being abducted? We were like, well, who's stopping it? And they look at you like, nobody. 
this is Africa. Like, this is not, you know, this is what's been happening. And we were just like, no way. What do you mean no one's stopping it? Where's the UN? Where's all these, you know, experts who are supposed to be solving this issue? Like, we couldn't believe the contrast between, like, if one kid is abducted in San Diego. Yeah. You know, it's literally everywhere over the news. So that contrast really hit us and we felt like, well, we don't know much. We're not international relations experts, but we have a camera. So we're going to document as many people as possible and try Mm -hmm. to get that spread to as wide an audience that will listen. And, and then bringing it back to where we were before people actually start paying attention and right. Right. And so that urgency was real. Yeah. Because we were friends with Jacob and Tony and Rosalind and Jolie and all of our, we lived there you know, on and off for two years. So we went back and said, what, what could help? And they were like education. So we started pouring into that, but we really kept wanting to end the war. That was like our first like primary objective and a war. Mm-hmm. That was like the first poster global night commute. We were always like, this is the end. It's insane. Um, and so I think people, when you study movements, they're always dangerous, sacrificial, and time-sensitive. Mm. But the mo- the word movement is now kind of bankrupt because everyone's using it. But yeah. like when you really look at a movement, it is sacrificial, dangerous, and time-sensitive. And so we always put a timestamp on all our events. Like, this is happening. We're passing yeah. a bill through Congress. Like, it's now. It's game time. And that urgency was very infectious to a generation who I think were kind of like, oh, we can participate in this? Mm-hmm. You know, like, we could be part of something larger? Yeah. What do you think it was that made us not believe that in the first place before we were able mm-hmm. to learn it? Or maybe a better question is, did, like, my parents' generation, did, you know, the generation mm-hmm. above me, did they feel the same way at all? Did they get that permission? Did they never get it? I love this metaphor that Socrates uses of the reflections in the cave. So there's like a bunch of people. Have you heard this? Yeah. Like living in the cave, right? And they see the reflections coming in from like outside the door and they start to worship the reflections and think that those things on the wall are real. And then someone in that tribe has the, courage to go outside the door and they go outside and it's so bright. They start screaming and saying, Oh my gosh, I'm blind. But after the I just just, they realize there's a whole world out here. Wow. There's, there's an amazing mountains and streams and rivers and all these incredible things. And then they go back down in it into the cave to tell everyone and they can't see. Mm. And everyone screams, Oh my gosh. Like if you go outside, you'll be blind. You can't see because it's too dark. The contrast. And so I really think that that metaphor applies to humanity across like generations, but I think specifically to this generation, the millennial young people were the, have been the most advertised, you know, generation in the history of humanity, 200,000 years on this planet. And like, think about the images we witness. And so all of those images, you actually think that those things have control, mm. that that's the power, that's the system. Like the system is rigged. The system is not broken. The system is working exactly as it was designed to work. Yeah. But you can change the way the system works. You can, like we cannot blame Trump and Hillary, whatever for, you know, running for president. We put them there. We allowed it. 
oh, the media does the media that. We are the media, right? <laughs> like, you can't get on the freeway exactly. and scream, you know, there's so much traffic. I hate this. Like, you are traffic. You're in your own car. <laughs> like, you're participating in it. So I love that. I love how John Lennon reminded us, like, we literally hold the power. And it takes a Malala, it takes a Gandhi, it takes an MLK to say, guys, you can go outside the cave. You're like, it's going to hurt, but it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you gave people a taste of that. You know, you said, hey, here's the thing that you can participate in. And then it would work. It would be like, wow, this bill actually got passed through Congress. Or like, wow, my local newspaper actually wrote about this thing that we did. Or like, it's it's just insane. Like, I remember the first time I got that feeling where I think I like signed petitions and then was like, that like something happened because like, because I did that. Yeah. And I think there's an addiction, like a good addiction to Mm -hmm. that feeling. Right. Like, wow, how empowering that like I showed up in D.C., I helped pass that bill through Congress, and now for the first time in American history, it is law for the U.S. government to come up with a plan to assist the Ugandan military to apprehend this number one warlord indicted. Like, whoa, like in the history of, you know, justice, this will be known. Like people will study it and be like, this was the first time the homo sapiens were exercising global justice. Mm. They saw this rock floating in a vortex through the cosmos and realized we only have one. Let's protect each other wherever we live. Whether that's the homeless man outside your door or these children being abducted. Yeah. Whether they can do something for you or not. Yeah. You don't have to choose between the two. You can do both. You can do one. You can do the other. But, you know, that's that's what really made me excited is this like global empathy that we are experiencing for the first time really because of the connectivity we have. And for me in my personal life, I know that invisible children was that first taste for me. Like that was my first opportunity to experience, wow, I've got this power and also like we can change the world together. We should change the world together. Would you, and, and this is probably a hard question for you to answer, but do you feel like, our generation was just primed and ready for this and invisible children just kind of came in at the right, in the right place at the right time, communicating in the right way. Or do you feel like in some ways, invisible children coming along at that time created this, if Mm. if that makes sense. I think I'm too subjective to answer that. (laughs) I know know it's it's almost awkward that I asked. No, it's a fun uh, exercise to imagine. I think that there is, a dance between the two um, because like, you know, Bobby Laren and I, we were always comparing ourselves to Apple and Nike and like huge brands and mm-hmm. being like the we're competing with brands that have millions of dollars of budget to like, you know, tell their story and get their products sold. And so we're like, we don't have that kind of money, but we are going to do the best we can to make the best movies and the best videos and use the greatest hot songs right now that are going to like get young people to come to our blog and come to our events. And so, yeah, I think, I think it was like a dance between the two. I think we injected like our ideology of invisible children, like a stick in a wheel and it kind of like 
some people were put off by it or thought there was an agenda behind it. And others who got closer to the people who were in that community were like, no, this is real. Like they live in a house together, you know, with 60 people, like they're committed. And like, you know, we would always joke like it's a cult and like cults are usually bad. Like I get that, but it was like a positive community that was so deeply connected. Oh, absolutely. You know, like I think that's really what, made people want to come like these they're very serious about it like we got to work every day as hard as we could because we knew that people were needing to be reunited with their families yeah every single day is more and more people being subjected to atrocities yeah and i think like a lot of people which like inspires me beyond words participated at some level with invisible children but then realized they wanted to do something like a coffee shop yeah like for the community in their small town and that was their mission to like give people a place to gather with intention. Like those kinds of stories. I remember really early on, 2004 or five, we met this guy who said, I worked at AT&T. I quit my job and I became a teacher. I'm now a teacher because of invisible children. That's amazing. And you're like, what? He's like, I wanted to give back to young people every day. And now I am. Thank you. We're like, whoa. And there's thousands of stories like that, you know? So for that not to have a ripple effect on society and on a generation. Um, I think it really did. And I think I am too short-sighted and impatient because I've been experiencing like the last two years of real like sadness or like depression over like, we didn't finish the goal. Like we didn't do what we sought out to do, you know? Mm. And then I, and then I look back and realize like, wait a minute, like this generation, like when you think about 10 years ago, right. My space was there. But, like, there was no Instagram or Facebook or, like, all of these powerful mediums that now everyone wants to have control of. So now a generation has 10,000 hours of social media, like, right about now. Yep. And now it's getting interesting because now what are we going to do with it? You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, that idea of, like, oh, my gosh, the next 10 years could be the most transformative in human history. Absolutely. Right. And so that's what gives me hope. Is that's like, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It, we're just at the tip of the iceberg. Right. We're just, we're just like, Oh, that's viral. Oh, let's okay, <laughs> let me show you viral. You know what I mean? Like that was nothing, you know, when you think about it. And I, so that gives me like a new, a new hope. And I think that millennials and young people, they know they have power. That's mm-hmm. what, but they don't see anything worthy of giving it away to right now. Hmm. So their posture is like, I'll just hold on to that and I'll wait until either I create something that's powerful or I see something out there that's worthy of putting my energy and resources now, into. That is interesting. Yeah. Wow. And I almost kind of feel like I'm trying to analyze myself right now. Do I see this in myself? I know I, I see it in people around me. I probably see it in myself. That's fascinating. And it's connected to what I think the Achilles heel or like kryptonite of the millennials is finishing what they start hmm. because the idea of failing is so petrifying and paralyzing that they won't take the step out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because there's this um, tribe in Kenya that lives in the mountains of Kenya and they get tortured at 13, like tortured. Have you heard about this? No. So these kids are like 13 years old. They make them like be in the freezing cold water in the lake overnight and like 
do all of these really physically hard things. These individuals, these boys grow up and they're the ones who win the marathons around the world Mm. because they know what pain is like and they are running and their lungs are burning and their legs are giving up. And they're like, this is nothing compared to what I experienced at 13. So there's no rite of passage in a Western context. Like you and I probably didn't have a ceremony in which we were, you know, kind of brought into the world as men. And so we have a stunted generation where you have 28 year olds, 33 year olds who are still either at home or feel like childish, like they never had to grow up. Why would they grow up? And so I think that if you, if you put that into context where you, you have a workforce now where baby boomers are saying, what's wrong with this generation? They're not working hard. You know, they're, they're doing what they want. They're going to yoga and coming in late <laughs> and all this stuff. Well, the generation answers back, A, you raised us. And B, maybe we are a little bit spoiled, but we don't see anything worthy of showing up to. Yeah. You know, selling more things, like really? Just selling more stuff? That's what we're like doing on this planet? So that's a little bit of a rant, but I think it's fascinating to see what's going to happen because it could go either way. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that the generation starts building things that are powerful and that are relentless and that you fail and you fail and you fail, but you get back up and you finish what you start. Thank you so much to each and every one of you who tuned into the podcast this week. If this is your first time listening, make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that next week when part two comes out, you get Jason's conversation downloaded straight to your phone in your sleep. Sounds Good with Brandon Harvey is part of the Gradient Podcast Network and is created in collaboration between me, Brandon Harvey, and Gradient. You can connect with me online and get updates about the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat at at Brandon Harvey. That's Brandon with an E-N. And this week and every week, you can find the show notes for this week's episode of Sounds Good at brandonharvey.com slash podcast. And sometimes I include bonus videos or links and, you know, it's just a fun time. So check it out, brandonharvey.com slash podcast. And with that, that's a wrap for this week's podcast. I'll see you online and I'll talk to you next week when we share part two of Jason's incredible story. Sound good? Sound good.